0: We are. Well, good morning to each of you. I would invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 13, and we'll be in the last part of what Jesus says to the disciples there in what is the, known as the prologue to the famous farewell uh, discourse. Um, by way of introduction, I just want to begin before we get going here and, and say... Uh, Happy New Year to each of you. I was not here last week. Uh, Thank you, Ted, once again for bringing the word uh, for us. And um, it is good to be back with you uh, today. I hope you've had a a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. And uh, I want you to know that as I have experienced with what is without a doubt the coldest season of my life ever, um, I am still here. And some of you have asked... To check in on me, and I want to say I'm doing I'm doing well. And so I had a moment last week where someone said to me, or oh, where we were in, I was in a conversation in a meeting and was talking about some of the things that we we're going to be doing over the course of this next season. And I was saying spring, and when I said spring, I'm thinking as a Texan does, a late January. That's where spring begins, and. Uh, essentially, December is winter, and as I was getting looks, I was realizing uh, that may have been the case, but it is no longer, and so I need to adjust. And so I am adjusting, staying warm. I hope you are as well. I want to put up a picture on the screen for you uh, today, and you may recognize it. It was in my um, it was in my grandmother's house growing up. Um, it, it was. Uh, It may have been in your house growing up. And it is known as uh, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Can we go ahead and get that up? Great. Should be familiar. Leonardo da Vinci is a famous painter um, of the Renaissance, and he was probably most well known for the painting of the Mona Lisa. I think I just saw something in the news the other day that said they are now limiting how many people can see the Mona Lisa down to only 30,000 per day. And so uh, people care incredibly about these paintings. So what's significant about this one? Well, what's significant about this painting is the moment that it depicts in John's gospel. It actually depicts a scene that we're going to look at right here in John 13. And it is that moment where Jesus has just described that someone is going to betray him. When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And you can see that moment of shock response right? You see all 12 of the disciples there, and we could take time and actually go through each one of them and talk about that, and I would enjoy that probably at your expense. Uh, But I want to say, look at the three to his left, or or to our our left, and from our perspective, and you'll notice there's three of them. I want to point out just a few things that you see there. First, you see John. It's not Mary Magdalene. It's John, who is to the left of Jesus, and he is leaning backward, to a certain character. Who is that? Who is that? Who do you think? If you had to guess, probably Peter, right? And Peter is, is pointing a certain direction. He kind of looks like he has a scowl on his face. He's angry, and he's pointing towards Jesus. And that depicts the moment where Jesus has announced someone is going to betray him, and Peter motions to John saying, ask him who it is. And so that's that moment. You notice when you look at Jesus, he's facing downward, right? His look, his gaze is down to, to his left arm. And what do you see at his left arm? All the way at the bottom, his hand. You see a piece of bread, right? And what does that depict? Well, will you look further at one other character and i'll answer that question the person who's right next to peter that's judas and judas is holding a money bag and that some have said that means he was to point to the fact that he was the treasurer of the group he carried the money of the disciples or the fact that he has 30 pieces of silver in which he is about to betray the lord that he is going to be the one to say where jesus is and then betray him with a kiss a little while from now And so that depicts that moment. You see where Jesus is pointing towards the bread. And then look at the other hand of Judas. It is also going for a piece of bread as well. You can see it if you look closely. And Jesus says, here's how you will know who betrays me. It is the one through whom which I dip this morsel with and I share it with him. And it depicts that moment. And so you asked the question, okay, how did, what did the actual story look like? What did the picture look like? I want to put another picture up on the screen. That probably is more of an accurate representation. They probably were not all on one side of the table for our viewing pleasure, right? They were probably in a table that was more reclined, closely, intimately talking with one another. And while Da Vinci describes this striking moment, there's so much that happens on either side of it. And so I want to tell you how that story goes. It's Thursday night, and in less than 18 hours, Jesus is going to be hanging on a Roman cross. And the disciples have come together for a meal, uh, a very tense meal. And if you read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that meal has its climax In the institution of what is known as the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, that we continue to take in remembering what he has done for us. But you don't have that here in John. In place of a last supper or the Lord's Supper, you have the washing of the disciples' feet. And so the Messiah... He sees all of them there, and he gets up at a certain point. He puts, his, uh, he put, he puts a towel around his, his waist, and then he gets a water basin, and he goes to the first disciple that he sees. He gets down, and he starts doing the job that only a servant could do. And if you know the story, he starts uh, washing their feet one after another after another. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, That's never gonna happen. And Jesus says, if you don't let this happen, you can have no part in me. And Peter being Peter, it's either all or nothing. He says, well, wash everything. Lord, Lord, get my head, get my hands, get my feet. Go for it. And so that happens. And then they take a seat back at the table. They're back at the table and Jesus explains what has just happened. He says, I do this to set an example for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus gets more cryptic, and he starts talking about how he's about to fill some Old Testament prophecy. He starts talking about how they are chosen, but not all of them are chosen. You go, okay, Lord, would you just come out and say it? What, what are you getting after? What are you saying? And then in this already tense, me, tense meal, the cryptic language goes away and Jesus just comes out and says, dropping a bomb, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Next step, John is prompted by Peter, who is it? And Jesus says, the one who I take this bread with. Judas takes the bread. And in that moment, we are told when Jesus takes the bread with him, he says to him, essentially, Judas, do what you're going to do. Do what you're going to do and do it quickly. The devil enters into him and he goes out into the darkness. And scripture reads, records it for us this way. It says that Judas, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And it was night. D.A. Carson, in describing that significant detail, and it was night, puts it this way. Jesus claims to be the light of the world, how appropriate that the betrayer of the light should walk out into the darkness. And that's what happens. If you think this awkward dinner party is going horribly wrong, Jesus then proceeds to go into a monologue, and he says these words. He says, look at verse 31 with me. He says, or the text says, when he, that being Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will after follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered You will lay down your life for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. These are profound words, aren't they? And when you read words like this, there's a part of you that goes, I know that's really important. I'm not sure I even fully grasp the meaning of this. You might have to read it about 10, 15 times before you really get it, it feels like. Profound. But then imagine what it would be like to hear it for the first time, and you think you've been at an awkward dinner party. This takes the cake for it. And yet, I believe what Jesus says here are the perfect words that you and I, friends, need to hear at the beginning of 2023 as we go into the future. So here's what we're gonna do. I wanna give you four things, four main things that I believe that Jesus points us to this morning that shows us, what we need, I think, as we start this new year. Four things. Uh, the first one is that we would see the intertwined glory between the Father and the Son. Uh, the second is that we would see the reality that Jesus is about to leave. And for disciples, that was the case for us. Where has he gone to? Third, that we would not miss that command to love one another. Don't miss that. Love one another. And then lastly, when we compare peter to jesus we would see the faithlessness of all men in comparison to the faithfulness of one man for all so let's look at the first one of those so let me reread the verse 31 through 32 because there's depth here now is the son of man glorified and god is glorified in him if god is glorified in him god will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once you may have noticed a word in there that is repeated a few times, right? What is it? It's that word "glorify," and so that comes from the from the Greek "doxa." And so, if we have ever sang the doxology in here, it is it is the word of glory, essentially, literally put out for you like that. We are praising the Lord and acknowledging who He is. That word "glory" It's such a hard word to define. I I find myself as my son August is getting older and he's asking questions, I'm just thinking, how would I explain a word like glory to a small child? Because if you can't do it that way, you don't really know it yourself, right? If you can't be simple and clear. You think of other words like beauty or love, like how would you define those words if you had to? How would you nail it to the wall? It's hard to do it, but let's try it. And I think we can do it through an Old Testament passage we referred to before that connects God's glory with his holiness. Friend, understand this. You cannot fully understand God's glory unless you understand how it's attached to the hip, to his holiness, to his holiness. So when I say God is holy, what do I mean by that? If you think about that, what do do I mean by the word Holy. Shorthand answer might be that God is set apart, which should be familiar. You've heard that before. God is holy. He's set apart because he has infinite worth. He is great. When we sing, is he worthy? And then we say he is, you are acknowledging who he is, that he is holy. He is who he is. And so I like the observation that one author has on Isaiah 6.3. This is the passage. When Isaiah sees that vision of the Lord in the temple, right, and the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is filled with his what? What do you expect him to say? He just said holy, holy, holy three times. The earth is filled with his. You would expect him to say holiness, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, holy, 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 the earth is filled with his glory. And so I think we can understand it this way. The glory of God is what happens when his holiness goes public. And so when you see his holiness on display, you see his glory. When you behold this distinct, other, separate, altogether perfect and holy God and recognize him for who he is you glorify him. Put in a sentence like this, God's glory is his holiness on display. And so when you acknowledge him for being who he is, you glorify his name, you recognize his holiness. And so let's take that concept of his glory being his holiness on display, and let's apply that now to our text here in verse 31. Jesus says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And so when the son is recognized in all of his splendor, we're told the father is recognized in all of his splendor as well. You don't get one without the other. Let me show you. Here's how the son is glorified. That word now is so important. Now he's glorified. You would go, okay, so I would not say that the moment where Jesus is most glorified would be when someone betrays him and is about to all go wrong. I would probably say that moment where he is glorified most would be when he turns water into wine, when he heals uh, this person, when he feeds 5,000 people, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's pretty awesome. That would be the moment I would choose. But you would say that he is glorified most when he is about to go to his death? The answer is yes. Augustine puts it this way. He says, he wasn't yet glorified then when he he raised the dead. And now he is glorified when he is about to join the dead. He wasn't yet glorified when he performed divine deeds. But he is glorified when he is about to suffer human ones. And so you see that the fullest display of God's glory comes through in this moment of greatest despair is because this moment marks the climax of God's redemption to bring salvation for every single sinner. I'm reminded of something that happened just a few days ago. I was watching a video of a recent conference that took place and people were talking and the speakers were talking about how great Jesus is, how awesome he is, and how much you need to tell other people and go forward and tell people about who Jesus is. And the guy spent 30 minutes of his 32 minute talk talking about it and I was going, that's true, but why? Why is Jesus so important? Tell me, the reason he's the savior and the reason he is the Savior is because he is the one who has come to bring redemption for your sin, for my sin, to crush the head of the serpent by sticking his head in the dirt and reminding him who he is, that he is a defeated enemy, and to defeat the last enemy that so many of us have experienced called death. And so you say, is the moment where he is most glorified when he's about to go to his death? Yes. Yes. Why? Because that's where he has the greatest victory over my sin, death, and the devil. That's where I can look at the cross and say, yes, from man's perspective, that is the greatest moment of humiliation. But from God's perspective, this is the moment of his son's exaltation as he is lifted up on a Roman cross on one day. And on another day, he is lifted up to eternal glory on the next three days later. This is the moment of God's fullest glory on display for you. But the Father, how is he glorified? Well, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You've heard heard this before. Elsewhere, you read in Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, we're told that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of his Father. And so there is such an intimate connection that they share the same nature. And so one, when he is working, is always working in tandem with the other they don't work separately they work inseparably and so when you see the son here's how it all fits together on a roman cross have you ever thought about what that cost the father what he was giving up in that moment we think about jesus but when jesus goes to the cross he is revealing the heart of a father who loves you and so when the Son is glorified in His obedience, the Father is glorified in how He reveals His heart through the Son. The Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. And so here's what I want to invite you to do. Stay with me. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Look at the next passage, verse 33. If we have said this, that Jesus is worthy of glory, now he says, here's where I'm going. He says, little children, yet a while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm taking off, and you'll be able to come with me later. And so for the disciples, this would be disorienting. He does, they don't know where he's going. And we have the hindsight of knowing of where he went. Where did he go? Where did Jesus go? We are told that he went back to his father. If you read in John 15, uh, 26, over in there, you will find probably what is the most central passage that gets at the heart of the gospel of John. Jesus has been sent by his father. He has come to do the work of his father. And now he is returning to his father. And so Jesus is not dead. He is alive, friend. He is risen from the dead. He's gone back to his father. And now you and I are told to get to work. But he hasn't left us alone. He's left us with the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you, look at verse 20, uh, 16 of chapter 14 at some time, and you'll see there is a helper that is going to come. We'll look at this in a couple weeks. But when Jesus leaves, he has to, because he's sending another called the Helper. And so Jesus has told us about the intertwined glory that he shares with the Father, that he is leaving to go away. But now we're told something else, a third thing. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, Jesus says, if you love one another, okay? Okay. Now, you should read that, and a part of you should go, nah, that's not new. Why would you say that's a new commandment, Jesus? Surely Jesus gets it wrong here because you read Leviticus 19, and we're told there the Israelites are told to love your neighbor as yourself. You read Deuteronomy 6, that talks about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, how is it that Jesus, who has said earlier at another time, that if you want to sum up the whole law and prophets, it's to love your, your God, and it's to love your neighbor, how could this right here be a new commandment? This seems like an old commandment right here. Do you see what I'm saying? How is this new? This seems old. And so I think the answer is actually in the second part of verse 34. He says, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. There's the key. What Jesus is saying is he's saying you are to love one another, but the love that you show one another has a divine source. And it brings you into a new community. The love that you have towards your brother, your sister, your friend, whoever it is, it doesn't come from you, Christian. And so take heart, man. You find someone who's difficult in your life, you have been so equipped with the greatest power there is that doesn't come from within you, but it comes from the Father through the Son for you. The Father and the Son have perfect love, and you're invited to be a part of that as well. It's a Trinitarian love. And so when we have this identity marker, friends, of love on display, we serve as a witness to a watching world. The question is the one another. Who is my neighbor? I think when you read John, you'll see both in John's gospel, you'll see this also in the epistles, first, second, and third John. You'll see the one another is both my Christian neighbor and also my lost neighbor. Can we just take a couple minutes and walk through what it means to love my Christian neighbor? And then the second. When you love like Jesus loved, you can be gracious to church people, difficult church people, because you're one of them. You can be gracious and merciful, patient and kind. You won't envy or boast. You won't be arrogant or rude. Christians do not seek their own way. They are not irritable or resentful. They do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but they rejoice with the truth. They bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Now, if you know your Bible, you know I'm referring to what's known as the famous love chapter that's used at a lot of weddings, and yet it's really in context talking about how you're supposed to love Others, while you're exercising your spiritual gifts. But I want to do something. I don't know if I've done this in here before, but it's always worth doing, it, doing again. Have you ever replaced the word love with your name? See how that works. I'll use myself as, a, as the punching bag here. So let me, let me do this, okay? Aaron is patient and kind. Aaron doesn't envy or boast. Aaron isn't arrogant or rude. Aaron does not insist in his own way. Aaron does not get irritable or resentful. Aaron does not, I don't know why you're laughing. Aaron does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Aaron rejoices with the truth. Aaron bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. I have to say, just doing that right there, I feel so embarrassed because I know how much it's not true. And yet, that's what we're called to be. Do you see how you don't add up? And yet, you're, this is what you're called to do. But you can only do it when you have a divine source of love to fulfill a divine mandate. And so my prayer for every single one of us this year, 2023, is put aside just a moment all the resolutions and go, God, how are you calling me to love in each of the relationship dynamics that are represented here at Bethesda. Child to parent, husband to wife, and back and forth, friend to friends, elder to deacon, and deacon to elder, right? We could take it in so many different ways. How in my relationships that are represented right here in this room am I called to love others? Lord, show me, show, me, show us. And then we would also consider this reality. Do you know that this is the 80th anniversary this year of the life of Bethesda. Lord, would you make us a loving community so that we would have another 80 years because lost people in Huron have seen that we have a witness of love towards one another. That's my prayer for us as we go into this year. Okay? But I want to do something now and I want to flip this around and I want to ask a question. What happens if we don't love one another? Well, I think the answer would be if we don't love one another, we prove that the love of God is not in us. And so you say to me, Aaron, are you saying that if I don't love my neighbor, are are you calling me an unbeliever? Are you saying I'm not a Christian if I don't love others? And, and I just want to say, I would never put that over you. I, I, would, I would never hold up such a high standard that says that you have to love others, uh, love difficult people, or you're lost. I would never do that to you. I would never say that. But your Bible does. 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he does not love his brother from whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Are you offended yet? Let me go further. Whoever does not love abides in death. These are not my words. This is the Bible. This is 1 John. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that murderers... No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I invite you to check those verses. They are severe, friend. And so when you consider the full witness of Scripture, and you consider what Jesus is saying through John, it's essentially this command, love one another or else. That's what Scripture is saying, love one another. And so when we don't love one another, but we slander others, and we say falsehoods about them, and we invite other people into our circle and say, did you hear about such and such? Man, we invite death into God's community. When we don't love, but we gossip about others, our brothers and sisters made in the image of God, oh, they're just like that, and we pigeonhole them in such a way that is unfair, in a way that we would never want to be treated. We malign them, and we use our tongue to set the whole world on fire. When we don't love, but instead show unforgiveness, we put nails of bitterness into our own coffin. And I don't want you to be bitter. I don't want anybody in here to live in that kind of bitterness. When we don't love, and instead we're ungracious towards others when they make mistakes in God's community, we judge according to an unfair standard we would never want to be judged with. And we say things like, well, he just rubbed me the wrong way. As if like you've never done that to anybody else. As if I've never done that to anybody else. Man, I probably rubbed somebody wrong way in the last month, last day or so. It's I'm a sinner and so are you and so are all of us. And so maybe we should show the loving kindness that God has given us that we don't deserve towards others and we will see that the source is one that is divine, friends. Did you notice that everything that I've been saying has been on the basis of how we talk, right? So you can love in your actions, but I want to challenge you to think about how you love and the things that you say and what you hear. So let us be the kind of community then that puts the things that are not of God to death, instead, speak words of life. To hate with our words brings death, to love with our words brings life. So the question then is okay, what about our lost neighbor? What about those kinds of people? And here's what I would want to say about that I've been waiting to tell you this story because I think it fits here. There's a pastor who I know, and he lost his job uh, about this time last year. And he was exiting his senior pastoral job as I was getting ready to enter into this one. And I was saying, Brother, you've been in ministry for like 20, 30 years. What happened? Yeah, because I I don't want that to happen in my life. You tell me what happened in your life uh, to get to this point. And he says, Here's what happened Um, I was at a church that had that was multi generational meaning it had it had it had the child it had dad and mom, it had grandparents sound familiar um, it, it had uh, uh, it was well established in the community it was long standing sound familiar is that, is that, that should be familiar to us and he said, what I decided to do in my first ten months at the church he said I went to Uh, the chairman of my elders, and I said, come along with me, and I want to do uh, interviews, and I want to have conversations with people. And so they went to each of their, during their Sunday school hour, each of the classes, and they took a poll, asked questions. And they wanted to find out not only what does the pastor want to do, but what does the church want to do? And that, by the way, is a very important question. Uh, The pastor can do what he wants to do all day long. But the question that really matters at the end of the day is, where does the church see herself going? And so he asked that question. And at the end of it, they came back, took all the data together and looked at it. And he told me in one word, this is what he discovered about the church. They wanted to remain comfortable, comfortable. It's not that they didn't want to be comforted. He says, I can comfort you all day long. He says, they wanted to remain comfortable, comfortable. And he said, I'm the kind of guy that challenges people with God's word to live according to the standard he has for us. And he says, I knew the writing was on the wall within my first year there. And I thought of that and I went, well, interesting. And so friends, listen to me. My, My spiritual gift is not subtlety. So let me just give it to you right here. Adrian Rogers has said, a church will either evangelize or it will fossilize, but it will not stand still. And so here's what I see in our community in the time that I've been here. I see a community that struggles with a drug problem. I see a community that has uh, many young people who deal with severe, I've been surprised, but I am not, who deal with depression and deal with incredible mental illness. We've had plus one here this morning. Doesn't your heart break when you hear about another teenage pregnancy and you see a young woman and you go, man, how, how are we gonna come alongside her in this hour, Right? And I could go down the list, and and you know this in your own vantage point for how you witness this community. But there's a part of me that is surprised at how other people are surprised when they see brokenness. Like, how could it be that way? And I want to say, like, how are you surprised that unbelievers would act like unbelievers because no one has told them about the gospel that saves and brings redemption? Yesterday, by my count, there are 29 churches, wow, in the city of Huron. There are 29 churches, and I want to ask, how many of them are evangelical? And when I say evangelical, I mean have a passion for God's word, care about evangelism and conversion. I want to be cross-centered in proclaiming Christ crucified, that he is worthy and above all else, and are active in their community. I'll be honest, this is just what I've seen since I've been here. I hear about a handful of churches that are getting after it. And I go, how many of our churches, what about us in this room, are reaching our young people for Christ in our community? How is that really going at the end of the day? I think if we could take a stat on how many people are going to church in Huron, we might be really disappointed, actually. And so I've been reminded that it's easy to give lip service towards caring about lost people. It's quite another thing to say, here am I, send me, Lord, and to count the cost and go anyways. And so I'd ask you to now listen to me very carefully. I love that we support international missions. In fact, I care so much that we've decided that we, were, that we would have a monthly missions moment here, and we would highlight those for, that our missions committee tells us about all the time, and, and you would hear about them. We want you to know where your mission support is going to, internationally and locally, but most of it is not here in Huron. I'm pleased to do that. I came from a church that gave 50% of its budget towards missions. And I love the fact that I'm at another church that really cares about that. But I want you to know that you cannot say that you love missions and yet not love your neighbor who is right across the street. And do everything possible so that he would know Jesus as Savior. And so I want to say two things now that might end the honeymoon period that I've been with most of you right now might end it right now but I'm gonna say two things and so here they are first I believe that our kingdom investments as we consider whether we support international missions or local missions listen to me it is not an either or conversation it is a both and conversation and so my hope is that we would be a church that goes, this is what we're doing in international missions. Great, what else can we do? And we would also be a church that says, this is what we're doing locally to make disciples. Okay, what else can we do to invest even more that that would happen in our church and also in our community? Loving the lost people of this world is always going to cost us something. And as we enter into this year, I want to ask you, are you willing to pay that cost? And how we invest into the kingdom with our time, resources, and all other ways. That's the first thing. It's not either or. I want you to hear that from me. It is both and. Second thing, if you haven't figured out, I'm somewhat like that other pastor. I'm on the move. And I hope that you would be with me as well. I I, am never going to be the kind of guy that is okay with us being complacent. I can't live there, friends. You got the wrong guy if you wanted somebody else. Surprise, here I am, right? I want you to see God's word, and I want you to live according to how he has called you to live. I want you to live with the fullness of the blessing of his grace for you. And I also happen to believe that the most loving thing that you can do, that I can do, is to call us to fulfill the church's mission. And so if you want a mission statement, let me give it to you here. It is this, that we would make disciples that love Jesus to the glory of God. It's not that hard. It's quite, it's quite simple and straightforward that we would make disciples who love Jesus to the glory of God, also known as the Great Commission. That's it. And so if you agree with that, man, let's go. Let's go. Let us go internationally. Let us go locally. And let us make disciples of the entire world. Our passage ends with these words. Peter goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, this can't, where are you going? Jesus says, you can't come with me now, Peter. And Peter says, well, I want to go where you're at. And he essentially says to him, he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here again from Augustine who compares these two to each other. The sick man was vaunting his willingness, but the physician perceived his infirmity. The one was who was making a promise, but there was another who was foreseeing the future. Peter was ignorant and he was daring, but Jesus foreknew and he was teaching in this moment. What's troublesome about what what Peter does when he says, I'll die for you, is not his false sense of courage, His problem is that his actions would threaten the mission of Jesus that he is about to fulfill in a few hours, that Jesus would die. See, it's not Peter who would die for Christ. It's Christ who would die for Peter. And Peter Peter represents all of us. We are faithless. We go out the door with Judas into the darkness. We fail to recognize the glory of Christ's work in our dullness, It should bother you that when you hear about the glory of God, it doesn't stir you up with a passion. The problem is not God's glory. The problem is our eyesight. We fall short in loving our neighbor as we should. And yet when all other men are faithless, Jesus stands in the gap and he is faithful towards us. And he has won for us unmerited grace. We do not deserve him. And yet somehow in 2023, the 80th year of our existence, Jesus is still here and doing work in his church. And he is here for you, friend, this year, no matter of what may have happened in the last. And so let us see the one who beholds all glory with his father because of what he did on a cross for us. The one who has left us, but he has left us with a mission, a mission to love one another and so if you are interested in loving one another in such a way that blesses those in this room and proclaims Christ to a watching world that's the kind of community I want to be a part of the question is is that the kind of community we want to be let us love one another let me pray